Hello everybody, this is the fourth sermon looking at the women in Jesus's line and today we're looking at Bathsheba, a story of love from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. What is love? That is a profound and challenging question that poets and philosophers have debated and explored for centuries. What is love? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible has an answer. An answer so beautiful it has never been matched in all of literature. Still today, even non-believers have it read at their weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The Greek word translated love in those verses is the word agape. And I love what James Packer once wrote about it. The Greek word agape, love, seems to have been virtually a Christian invention. A new word for a new thing. It is almost non-existent before the New Testament. Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. It is not a matter of will rather than feeling, for Christians must love even those they dislike. It is the basic element in Christlikeness. Agape love, the basic element of Christ-likeness. That is some statement. It means if we want to come to terms with who Jesus is, we must explore the concept of love. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the women found in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. We have learnt that it was almost unheard of for women to be included in a Jewish genealogy, so the Holy Spirit must have inspired Matthew to write their names for a reason. And slowly but surely we have discovered what that reason was. Each of these women teach us something of what Christ came to achieve. By looking at Tamar, we found that Christ came to bring hope. He will bring an end to all forms of abuse against the oppressed. By looking at Rahab, we found that Christ came to bring peace. Even those worthy of judgment will know mercy if they turn to the Lord. By looking at Ruth, we found that Christ came to bring joy. Through his loyalty to us, he will transform our sorrows into life and delight. This week, we are looking at Bathsheba. And we're going to learn a lesson of what love really is and how Christ came to bring it to us. One of the interesting things we've discovered through this series is that each of these women appear at a time in Jewish history when the men were up to no good. Time and again, God used a look down upon woman to set an example that would get the rest of his people back on track. For Bathsheba, this was true in the extreme. The eagle-eyed amongst you will have noticed that although I'm talking about Bathsheba, In Matthew's genealogy, that is not how her name appears. Rather, she is referred to simply as the wife of Uriah. 
the wife of Uriah. That's a little disrespectful, you might say. Bathsheba was a person, a woman in her own right. She had more going for her than simply being a possession of a man. Why not use her name, like with the other women in the list? Well, there is a reason that Bathsheba is recorded only as the wife of Uriah. And the reason is that that title highlights a great sin that was committed. A sin committed by a person of no lesser stature than great King David himself. Remember, Matthew is writing to Jews. King David was their all-time hero. By including Bathsheba alongside David's name as the wife of Uriah, Matthew is doing something deeply provocative. He is reminding the Jews that even their great king was a deeply flawed human being who made many errors and therefore completely relied on the merciful love of God. In Bathsheba's day, David was up to no good. Without God's love, David was nothing. Last week we read the story of Ruth. It is one of the most heartwarming in all of the Bible. Sadly, this week, at least initially, the story is the complete opposite. Bathsheba's story is heartbreaking. It is the story of love gone wrong. The story of all the terrible suffering that is caused when love gets distorted by sin. There are three things that poison love in this reading. The first is lust. The story begins with David looking out from his palace and seeing a beautiful woman bathing. Immediately he is filled with lust and all he can think of is that he wants her. Now let's get this straight. Sexual desire is good. God made sex to be exciting, enjoyable and life-producing. Sex is a gift from God, one of his best. But God also knew how powerful sexual desire is. So he created marriage to safely contain it. The truth is, people always get damaged when lust takes over. Rather than love being patient and kind, people become objects to be used and manipulated. Objects are not beautiful people in the image of God. They are items to be taken. Now, the text makes no suggestion at all that Bathsheba was doing the wrong thing by bathing where she was. But by coming an object of lust, she was about to suffer. It was David who was where he shouldn't have been, looking down from his palace rooftop at her, allowing his eyes to linger and his heart to follow. The second poison that distorts love in this story is power. David abuses his power as the absolute monarch. When you read through the story, it's remarkable just how many times David sends out his servants on errands. Again and again, he gets people beneath him to do his dirty work for him. As God's king, David was supposed to be a servant, a servant of God and a servant of the people. But here David fills his time with ordering, sending and taking for himself. For that is the Hebrew word used in verse 4. After hearing who Bathsheba was, David sent his servants to take her. David has manipulated his position. He is using his power 
to be abusive. And although the text does not say it, we are to understand that in her day, Bathsheba had no power whatsoever to refuse the advances of a lustful king. Still today, abuse happens when power is exploited and the vulnerable are forced into action. If love is defined as not self-seeking and always protective of others, we can see that this is no love at all. Finally, we see how love is poisoned by deceit. 1 Corinthians says love rejoices with the truth. Well, there is very little of that in this relationship. After David's advances, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Bathsheba sends a message to David, no doubt distraught and desperate for his help and protection. Think about it. If Bathsheba is to have any hope for the future, she's going to need David to be honest with her husband. She needs David to tell Uriah that he forced her into this. She didn't go looking for another man herself. Sadly, David has no intention to tell the truth whatsoever. As soon as he hears Bathsheba is pregnant, utter deceit kicks in. David does everything he can to cover his guilt. And of course, these lies on top of the sexual immorality just make everything worse. Soon things have escalated to the murder of an innocent man. Even after Uriah's death, the deceit continues. David has Bathsheba brought to the palace and marries her, seemingly trying to cover everything up until the baby is born. We even get the hint that he thinks he can deceive God. But nothing could be further from the truth. The final words of chapter 11 are incredibly ominous. David thought he'd got away with it, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This really is a story of love gone wrong, and Bathsheba is very much the victim. Lust, power and deceit have distorted love out of all recognition. Uriah is dead and his wife the possession of the king. And if we are honest, we know that it is these unholy three, lust, power and deceit, that still break so many marriages and relationships today. It is often commented that sin is a word no longer used in our society. We prize tolerance so highly and live such individualistic lives that it is deemed there is no longer any place to cast a moral judgment on someone else's behaviour. Fortunately, God does not play by the rules of the liberal West. The God that the Bible reveals to us is holy and he is just. He made the world to be good and anything that damages it or his beloved people within it offends him. In God's eyes, sin must always be confronted. It must always be rooted out. How else can God protect innocent victims like Bathsheba and Uriah? David thought he had deceived God, but he was about to find out just how wrong he was. God has seen everything and he's not going to let David get away with it just because he is king. In what happens next, we see the supreme wisdom of God. How do you bring a hypocritical king who has let power go to his head back to ground? 
while you get him to condemn himself. This is precisely what happens when David reacts with such indignation to the prophet Nathan's parable. Nathan turns up and tells the story of a vulnerable man who had the one thing he held dear taken away from him. David declares that the perpetrator is worthy of death. Nathan spins round and says, you, David, are that man. You took Uriah's beloved wife away from him and then had him killed. You, David, are worthy of death. And in that moment, David learns the lesson that we all must learn in life. At some point, somewhere, our sin will find us out. We are simply being foolish when we dare to think otherwise. It's just the way that God has made the world to be. Sin is serious. It has consequences. It affects everything. Nathan declares that just as David has used violence to cover up his actions, from now on he would know the sword turned against him. God would see that justice was done. After all, if God let the king get away with this, the whole land would soon be doing the same. And suddenly there is real doubt as to whether David's royal line will even continue because of what he has done. In a moment, we're going to be talking about the supreme love of God, his great mercy and compassion. But never let that fool you into thinking that he is a soft touch. Part of God's great love is that he is holy and just. In fact, he would not be loving to the likes of Uriah and Bathsheba if he wasn't. Sin must always be confronted. This is just as much a part of what love does as forgiveness is. But in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, everything changes. On being confronted by his sin, David demonstrates just why he was the ideal king of Israel. Clearly, it was not because he was perfect. No, it was because when he went wrong, he repented quickly. After hearing Nathan's damning judgment, David makes no attempt to dodge the allegation or place any of the blame on Bathsheba. He simply and wholeheartedly confesses his wrongdoing. Verse 13 says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now this is very much the shortened version of David's confession. If you want to read it in full, read Psalm 51. For there we find David pouring out his heart in sorrow and contrition before the Lord. And we need to realise how unusual this was. Many kings in the ancient world did what David did. Some of them on a very regular basis and they never felt any need to confess it. David though was different. Fallen and flawed as he was, David knew that to repent is the best way to break cycles of sin where evil is escalating and more and more damage is being done. It is a lesson to us all. Whenever we've gone wrong, no matter how condemning and embarrassing it is, the best solution is always to confess and start making practical steps to turn things around and put things right. And wonderfully in what happens next, we see just why this is the case. When God hears us truly confess our sin, he takes great delight in extending his forgiveness. He tells Nathan to speak these words. 
The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. In God's great mercy, David's life will be spared. His line of descendants will continue. But that does not mean that all in life will be a bed of roses for David. Throughout both Testaments, the Bible is very clear about this. Sin may be forgiven by God, but it still has consequences. It leaves scars upon us. After assuring David of his forgiveness, Nathan announces that he will still have to experience the aftermath of his actions. The son conceived in such a sinful, stressful and unhealthy way will die a premature death. Because David has shown such a complete disregard for family values, he will find his own children copying his example and treating him the same way. In fact, the rest of David's life will be plagued with problems starting from his own family. This is difficult to take, but it is the way with the world. God built the world to work on principles of justice and holiness. This is what happens when those principles are broken. And so it will always be until the end of the age. But having said that, in his great grace and mercy, God does limit those consequences and cause new life to come. Foremost among this, he looks out for Bathsheba and brings some new joy into her shattered life. The story ends with Bathsheba bearing another son, Solomon, with David. As a new queen mother, Bathsheba will use her influence to ensure Solomon succeeds David as king. And indeed, it is from Solomon and his descendants that Jesus finally comes. Solomon must have brought great love and joy into Bathsheba's life after all the sorrow she had experienced. But I want to draw our attention to just a tiny little detail at the end of the chapter. Verse 24 and 25 of 2 Samuel 12 say this. The Lord loved Solomon. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. The Lord turns up and gives Solomon another name, Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. In that one act, we learn so much. God's special favour rested on Solomon. Despite David's great sin, the Lord looked kindly on him and protected his legacy. David's own name means beloved. So Jedidiah is a play on David's name as well. David too is loved by the Lord. The Lord saw his sin, but because David confessed, God's love would never be taken from him. And suddenly we see what this whole story and this whole sermon has been heading towards. We see how God's love compares to our own. God's love is not selfish like our human lust. God's love does not use power to take, but to serve. God's love is not deceitful, but keeps rigidly to the truth and enables that truth to set people free. God's love is full of grace, mercy and compassion. God's love is extended to even the most sinful of people. David's name is the most significant name in the whole genealogy of Jesus. 
But by including the name of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, alongside him, the Holy Spirit has ensured that David is not put on an unwarranted pedestal. Bathsheba's presence in Jesus' genealogy insists that every person, no matter how great they are, is utterly reliant on the grace of God. They are reliant on David's greater son, the Messiah, who came into the world to show God's love to all. A love with the power to redeem people caught in tainted relationships and restore them to the true freedom offered by God. Bathsheba experienced love gone wrong, but she also bears witness to God's love that can put all wrongs right. So what is it that we learn about Jesus from Bathsheba's inclusion in his genealogy? We learn again that he came to save sinners. We learn again that he came to restore victims and end abuse forevermore. We learn that Jesus came to show us what God's love looks like. For it is about Jesus that we read these verses in 1 John 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This Advent season, let us allow Jesus to answer the question, what is love? Let us give thanks to him for that love that so freely forgives and restores us. And unlike David with Bathsheba, let us seek to respond by loving people in the same way.